Oh, hello there, sweet summer children. You've stumbled upon another episode of the podcast, Peep This Noise, the only podcast brave enough to ask the question, do you want to build a podcast? I'm Logan Johnson, and seated to my left, probably, uh, actually I think it's directly in front of me by 15 miles, is Nathaniel and Greg sitting in another <laughs> mic. Uh, yeah, you guys want to uh, just say hello? <laughs> Hi, I'm Greg Marchant. And I'm Nathaniel Johnson. Uh, welcome to this episode of Peep This Noise. Awesome. So this is the episode that has been uh, cooking. It's been in the the pressure cooker for about four months now. Just no, me... it's, it's been there longer. In... It's been there. It's been there since this project was announced. <laughs> we, we all we all love what we're about to talk about. I think it's true. But I particularly was the second I saw this movie, which is uh, Frozen Two. I extremely wanted to talk about it. I, I knew there was some stuff we were going to go ahead and dive into on it. Um, people who Anna haven't seen it? it... What? What? Okay, do not make another Frozen pun, or Elsa. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, glad I got a few O laughs out of that Spen, one. When are we going to start actually <laughs> recording this podcast? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, probably right now. Uh, so yeah, off let... so hard at all these puns. <laughs> He's got us. He's got us all. Uh, I'm trying to think of one with Kristoff, but really we should just start and do this. <laughs> Man, then maybe... we're going to get on with it. <laughs> Man, stop trolling us, all right? Um... <laughs> the subtlety of that one caused just a slight delayed laugh from Greg, which I really appreciate. Yeah, so, uh, you know, everybody loves these movies, especially little girls and little boys. Uh, they think this movie's great. It's a children's movie, but I think it has some deeper implications, uh, aside from being just awesome and beautifully animated. Um, yeah, I want to talk about this movie specifically in, in the sense of, of post-colonialism, uh, this idea that this movie was made in a, in a setting where colonialism is, it has happened, it has started to slow down or at least become more nuanced, and it is now considered generally unacceptable. And that's the context that this film comes out in, right, in 2019. Um, so I guess just kind of to, to slow pitch and start us off, I wanted to talk about kind of in general, in what ways does this film serve as a post-colonial narrative and commentary on European and American imperialist practices? Ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me. Um, <laughs> so I, I got to take a class from a wonderful professor, um, of history that was, uh, colonial Latin America. And it basically just did a brief overview of the colonial expansion of the Spanish and Portuguese empires in Latin America. Um, do not have time to go into that here, but I will say this. He did start off the class by warning me. Not to go too far, or you'll be drowned. He, that that is, he sung it to me in this weird lullaby, and that's how we began. So, oh, with that wow. said, uh, please continue. Oh, that was all you uh, had to say? No, in all seriousness, uh, there's something kind of <laughs> horrifying when you study, because I actually took both uh, colonial Latin America and modern Latin America with him, and there's something kind of horrifying when you realize that the country that you've grown up with, that you have been very patriotic about that you've loved for a long time uh has a really long dark brutal and violent history to anybody else um i mean yeah this is the central this is the central tension of this film right 
as much as uh, the big Elsa stands out there really want this movie to be about like Elsa discovering something about her powers, which it is to a degree, right? The deeper narrative of this is is this question of what do we make of of the colonialism present in Arendelle, and and what does it mean for the characters that live there now, right? Um, which I think is really interesting. This this realization of where the bad guys is kind of central to this film. Um, what what do you have to have to think about this, Greg? What's on your mind about this being a post colonial narrative? So I I rewatched this movie again today with specifically with um with the questions that you wanted to discuss in mind. Unfortunately, you picked kind of a a line of questioning in which I find the movie kind of disappointing. Like, I, I feel like it doesn't live up to what it could have been in this regard. Mm. Um, because I, I, I don't feel like it was, I don't feel like it's exactly groundbreaking as I, I think it does an adequate job of serving as a narrative of how um, a narrative of people, uh, of like the the descendants of the colonial powers kind of trying to move along uh move beyond what they did and being willing to make sacrifices to make things right uh to make what their ancestors did right um but i didn't exactly feel like i didn't exactly feel like it was groundbreaking because we still fell into this weird um it, it's the movie still fell into this weird trap of the idea of the noble savage that the that the others outside of Arendelle, the uh, the Northaldra, were were just another representation of this mysterious and exotic, um, mysterious and exotic noble savage. These this idealized people who trust in nature and uh, and are closer to the earth and somehow morally uh, morally superior as people. And while you know groups who were colonized at least have the moral superiority of not having you know murdered and uh murdered and conquered their way through other populations um necessarily than uh compared compared to the colonizing powers it's it's kind of a weird um the the idea of the noble savage is kind of has uh is kind of a problematic thing if we think about it from a modern perspective because it somehow makes uh while while the group of people um while the group of people portrayed here are portrayed as noble they're also portrayed as not uh as not as ad, not as advanced in some way not as uh not as high up on the evolutionary ladder which the evolutionary ladder is another really problematic idea and it's I I did find it disappointing that they couldn't have moved away from that more than they did. Sure, and I think that that's a valid critique of this film. One thing that I think is kind of uh, important to note, though, is is you make the argument that it's not groundbreaking, and I I agree. As a post-colonial narrative, this is not uh, even the best thing that you could read, right? Um, however, it, there is a degree to which it is in air quotes groundbreaking because of the context in which it's released, right? Um, it's important to remember this is like largely a children's movie, and especially more particularly a Disney movie, right? Um, yeah, and that's you not have a to point s- there. That's not to say that like yeah, Disney definitely. doesn't have to do better in the future, right? 
But, you know, we're, we're, we're not watching like an HBO special on, on American colonization here, right? We're watching a, a film directed for children. So the fact that it, it transcends beyond anything more than, I mean, even, even what the first Frozen is, which is this idea of like, I have powers and there's bad people in the world, vaguely is the plot of Frozen, right? Um, the, fact that, <laughs> yeah. the fact that it transcends, and I love that movie and I defend it, but... The fact that it transcends that in any way to become any kind of post-colonial narrative I do think is is somewhat impressive and, and important, even though I agree with you that it doesn't necessarily land all of its intended punches, right? Um, well, I, I think it's worth comparing this movie not actually to Frozen, uh, but comparing it to Disney's animated Pocahontas. <laughs> that's, yeah. It's... Um, because I'm that, that's the last time that they tried to do an animated film for children as far as i know that is or at least one of their major releases i'm not going to count any like pocahontas 2 or anything um just the original pocahontas that is a post-colonial narrative of any kind and that movie understandably gets a lot of flack for what it does um it i mean there are things i legitimately love about that movie and we can talk about that some other time but the final song is an ensemble piece i think called savages um where both the colonizers and i think it's the iroquois nation but i'm not positive if you want to if you want to pretend that pocahontas is at all historical then yes it would be the it would be the. i think they refer to themselves as the iroquois yeah it would be rep uh one of the one of the groups who are part of the iroquois nations um but they both both groups in an ensemble fashion are singing the lines savages savages barely even human um and i think if i'm reading that correctly the goal of that is to say look everybody in this conflict was kind of bad haha like mistakes were made all around let's share the blame when it's like yeah but like i mean one group came in and completely disrupted a way of life Totally, yeah. totally. And and I think part of the reason that it doesn't hold up super well as a post-colonial narrative is that it's a colonial narrative and in some ways a colonial fantasy, right? Which is this idea that even with a little bit of conflict, colonialism ends well and it ends with kind of a happy ending, right? Which mm-hmm. is patently untrue, though we've found some kind of of, of synthesis and some kind of, of reasonable globalization in the fallout of colonialism colonialism was not this actualizing factor that brought us any closer to a happy ending than we already were right in fact it pushed us away um but what's interesting in in frozen 2 is that in 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 this film the colonizing has already been done right um and one of the things that i wanted to talk about this and and kind of look in 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 reference to the film's historical colonization is this idea that that a cultural theorist named Edward Said put forward? Um, I'm not going to read the question that I wrote here. Greg was kind enough to inform me it's a little wordy, and when I reviewed it, he's right. So I'll try and summarize some of the concepts that Said put forward. Um, one of the things that Said was really famous for in a book he wrote called Orientalism was this idea that a colonial a colonial group defines itself relationally to to the people that it colonizes. Right. So one of the things that they'll do in colonialism is a a colonizing group will pick things about their own culture, not like consciously, but 
they'll have values and then when they see that those values are not present in another group they use that as a basis to define that group as an other right um to exclude them because they're different and they don't include these predetermined values um and i want to talk a little bit about some of the ways that the film does this right this idea that um colonists define themselves relationally in context of this film i think one of the really interesting ways that this happens is kind of what kind of one of your criticisms of the film greg is this concept of the quote-unquote noble savage this idea that one of the only ways that they can that the writers of this film can conceptualize uh, a different group a different culture is to put them closer to nature right um yeah this idea that that they can't that the definition has to be relational. It has to be, they're different from us in this way, therefore they're a different group, right? They can't just be a different group that speaks a different language, but is mostly similar, right? Um, yeah. You mean like, it can't be like our conception of medieval English and medieval French peoples. Right, yeah, exactly. When, when I say like, when I say that, like, unless you've super in-depth studied like 1600 English peasantry and 1600s, French peasantry, which I at least have not. Um, those two groups are basically going to seem the same. They both worship the king. They both work the land. They both live in Europe, which is this vague notion I have of like rolling hills and castles and sheep. Um, and there's going to be some massive cities scattered throughout. Oh, and they're constantly in war with each other for some reason. Um, if my wife was on the show, I'm sure she would be like, that's not what it was like and would get on me because history is her passion. But, you know, that's my conception at least. Um, they basically look the same. Like, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference from one or the other, okay. except for by language, probably. Gotcha. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted there because I was a little bit confused at what uh, what you were meaning, but sorry, go ahead, Logan. <laughs> no, I, I, but I think it's this idea that, that things are defined relationally, right? Uh, Saeed, when he made this theory, essentially said, the only way that the West can conceptualize the Orient or what we would call now the East, right? Um, the only way the West can conceptualize the East is by putting it into this camp of the East, right? By putting it into a definition that explains all of the ways that it's different from the West, right? By categorizing it. Um, and, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about how this kind of ideological separation exists in, in Frozen 2. One of the things that I think is interesting and maybe to kick off the discussion here is in the very beginning of this movie one of the very first things that happens is when they are talking to their dad and he sits down to tell them the story of the north Uldra, right and of this enchanted forest right mm -hmm. he sits down and he acts like it's this big like clandestine secret and it was like this totally different area right and when you get there i you know they're not that fleshed out as a people right um, there are a few key characters that talk, but honestly, they're not that different, right? They're, there's even a dude there who talks to reindeer, <laughs> like Kristoff does, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and But it starts off with this kind of conceptual line of difference where the very way that they're introduced is kind of their dad pitches them as this mystical, magical people who were very close to nature, right? Um, which, again, is problematic, like you well, said, Greg. But it is about one that. of the ways the their ideology mom appears. Is Northoldra like their mom comes from this culture, and she 
just kind of takes the dad's description of it. Like, she doesn't try to correct it. She doesn't try to add to it. She's there in the room when he gives this very specific description of them. And she doesn't adjust it at all. And I find that very interesting in and of itself. Yeah. I So, I guess, what, what other things stick out to you guys as far as, like, the ways that these relationships are defined, the ways that these two groups view each other, um, and the ways that they interact throughout the course of the film? Um... I okay one thing because I I criticized right off the bat I'm gonna not walk back that criticism but I'm gonna kind of say something that I did really appreciate to this effect um they they have the two groups uh who have been living trapped in the uh trapped in the what do they call it the magic forest enchanted forest um and the the one group is you know all of the north ultra and then the other group are the uh are the soldiers from Arendelle. And they've managed to live there for 34 years, um, they say in the movie. Um, and they have this kind of... Uh, they have a... I mean, they have clear boundaries drawn between how they're supposed to interact, but then they also have lived there for 34 years without, you know, the one group trying to kill the other off. Uh, because, you know, the there's... There, there's clearly there's clearly been a dialogue open between at least the the captain of the guard and the uh, and the North Ultra leader in um, in the movie, mm-hmm. um, which I I thought was really good. Um, I thought was a really good take um, with respect to how they continued to. Uh, they continue to define themselves as other from each other. Mm-hmm. But while they were in there, they both seemed to, uh, they both seemed to also define themselves um, in terms of what they are rather than just what, how they are different. Um, the, the, uh, Sorry. I'm I'm gonna take a step back for a second. I I had a conversation once with a with an anthropology professor um, when um, when the class I was in was going through a book car, uh, called Portraits of the White Man, in which um, in which an anthropologist describes these moments in which through uh, certain like joking imitation behaviors, um, a Native American group. Um, trying to remember it was in the four corners area but i cannot remember uh i cannot remember which people right off the top of my head um would uh jokingly and mockingly imitate uh imitate uh caucasian americans and and it would be kind of a it would be kind of a funny joking behavior and it was um and it was one of the more uncommon ways and i was i brought up this idea that you know it seems like we always tend to within any uh within our culture it seems like we always tend to define ourselves based on uh based on our contact with other people and this professor brought up that yes that is what was happening in that book but to pay attention and uh to pay attention and make sure that i thought about the fact that that's not the only way that they were defining themselves the 
um, the soldiers of uh, the soldiers of Arendelle didn't just define themselves as uh, being as being civilized uh, city folk who are uh, who uh, don't uh, trust magic and stuff like that. They also defined themselves by what they were as a people who followed a monarchy, um, who were willing to step right into. Uh, step right into a role that they hadn't filled in 34 years as soon as they found out that their queen had just come to meet them. Mm. It's a very, I guess that's a very wordy way of me saying that I thought they did a, I thought they did a good job of showing that it is possible for some, uh, for groups to learn to define themselves um, both internally and externally at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. It's, you know, as far as their internal political decisions go, it's interesting to see with that that moment when they all kind of meet up, everybody meets up, uh, and it's it's very apparent that the way that the political definition of people from Arendelle is is not North Uldra, <laughs> and the way that North the North Uldra people view the people from Arendelle is like patently not us, right? Um, so there is that. This is, this is brought to a head when uh, the North Holdren leader says, in reference to the fact that Elsa has powers, why would the spirits have given magic to uh, an Arendellian? Right? Or what? however she exactly Why said. would they have chosen you right, like, for this power or something like right. that? She basically says, like, you're from Arendelle, you're not North Holdra, why do you get magic? That's not the, that's not the order of things. Well, and I think even more so than it being not just the order of things, it's it's kind of this implication of, you know, it all of the tension, the from a more eco-critical perspective, all of the the violence that has been inflicted upon the land, is as a result of this colonial colonial effort, right? And so this idea that like you come from a people who has inflicted, I mean, it would be like. <laughs> It would be like if you, to borrow some Avatar The Last Airbender terms, it would be like if you found out that, like, a Rockefeller was an earthbender, right? <laughs> you would be like, if somebody was going to have power to control the earth, you wouldn't think it would be somebody who had inflicted, from a family that had inflicted so much damage upon the landscape, right? Mm-hmm. You would be like, there's there's an irony to that, right? And I think that's maybe what's being reflected um, in, in that line. Um, kind of along this... If- Oh, go ahead. Uh, if I can add one more thing as to like how this movie pushes back against uh, Saeed's ideas here. Um, I thought it was really interesting in um, one of the early songs in the movie where Olaf and Anna are singing about how, you know, time passes and everything dies, basically. But some um, things but they never trust change. In... Yeah. yeah, some things never change. Yeah. Um, I noticed something this watch through that I hadn't noticed before, and that's when um near the uh near the end of or maybe it's near the middle of the song, when um Anna and Elsa are standing underneath the flag of Arendelle in the center of the square, like starting off a celebration. Um, they sing, uh, we're living in a kingdom of plenty that stands for the good of the many. Um mm-hmm. And that's and I think they conclude it with, and that's the way it'll always be. They say something about letting the flag of Arendelle always fly, or something. Yeah, like it's that. it's yeah. as somebody who's very familiar with this soundtrack, I'll cut in here. It's we'll always live in the kingdom of plenty that stands for the good of and the many, and I promise you, the flag of Arendelle will always fly. 
Yeah. Um that that is one moment where at least uh where at least Anna and Elsa are defining uh are not defining Arendelle uh relationally to the North Aldra. I mean, it's it would be kind of unclear to argue whether uh for me to like argue they're defining it in comparison to like some other group. They I mean, maybe they are. But they're definitely not defining it in relation to the North Aldra because the North Aldra aren't even really on their mind yet. Mm-hmm. They're just they they're just saying this is what Arendelle stands for, and that's something that comes up a couple of other times throughout the movie. This that's completely opposite of what Arendelle stands for when they find out that their grandpa was like the one who started the conflict and tried and tried to like wipe out the the North Aldra. Uh, totally. But on but the other hand, it? oh, go ahead. Yes, it is. Well, what I was going to say is <laughs> the North Holdra are relatively few in number. Arendelle, because of the dam, is a land of good and a land of plenty and for the many. I don't know that it is, though. To push to push back on your pushback, which I see what you're you're doing here to kind of try and expand the idea and say, like, oh, you know, the North Holdra are a minority. I don't think they are. There are not that many people in Arendelle. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. It's like That's a fair. city we see, them, state. we see the entirety uh, of them evacuated to the cliffs, and there's only about as many as the North Ultra. Yeah, That's there's fair. like That's 35 fair. of both people, right? These are, so, are some both... of the limitations of animation, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, especially with how well that film is animated. But I'll, I'll argue kind of further for Greg's point. Even in this context where he find where they find out that, you know, it's not always stood for good, right? Um, the decision that they make is that it will stand for good, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is part of what I think makes this a powerful, though fractured, post-colonial narrative in the sense that this is a film about what you do when you find out that your country always hasn't stood for what is good and what is right, right? And in context of this film, the answer is to, instead of relying on or focusing on the difference to focus on what makes your background good and use that to help other people right to help other mm-hmm. people who aren't a part of your background and i realize that's maybe not the perfect way to express that but this idea that you have to set right what was set wrong i think is really powerful i i i think i agree with the point you're making the way that i've been phrasing it to myself is that you um is that as as a nation um the the thing to do would be to accept the hard sacrifices that need to be made in order to make sure that the damage doesn't continue to grow totally uh, to, that's the way i've been thinking about to it to borrow the pithy maxim from the film you do the next right thing right yeah um, oh that that's, song i know it's good yeah it's the third best song in the movie maybe fourth but it's good <laughs> <laughs> wait is this downplay it there um but yeah no i hey, think it's hey elsa gets two power ballads in this because disney said hey you know why give elsa one power ballad why let idina menzel use her beautiful voice only <laughs> once? once yeah when we could good. do it twice and both of those are above that in my opinion and then of course Kristoff's song is just you know perfect um <laughs> classic i can i can i just add a quick thought here i one thing they did really well with this movie that has nothing to do with anything that we've talked about 
is just that they realized that this is a movie designed for kids and parents are going to have to watch it over and over again. So they wrote the music, uh, they, they made a movie for kids and wrote the music for their parents. Yep. And totally. I appreciate that. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, one of the things that I think is really cool about this too, to call, to call back to the second song in the film, which is after that kind of like, uh, intense lullaby that their mom sings to them about dying. Um, <laughs> or you'll be drowned. Yeah, it's uh, pretty good. But after that one is, is Some Things Never Change. And, and in that line where the... F- it's interesting, the the promise that they make to their people that the flag of Arendelle will always fly, right? First spoken by Elsa and then echoed by Anna is is a really interesting one because that promise is absolutely forgotten by the end of the film, Right. When Anna goes to destroy that dam, she has decided that something is more important than the flag of Arendelle flying, right? And Except that's the... has she? Because she she realizes that if she doesn't destroy the dam, Arendelle just won't exist anymore. Like uh, the spirits will destroy it. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I don't know that she. I mean, I think there's an argument you can make that she does it to resolve. Um. Because it's like to resolve the forest's anger, but that certainly wasn't what her musical number was about. So that feels That's like fair. a weird motivation to ascribe, <laughs> because she's not running and and singing a musical number about how I can't wait to fix this forest because I'm a perfect little white savior, right? Though that's Doesn't like a reason. Use it as a justification to somebody, though, if I remember correctly. Like somebody says it'll destroy Arendelle, and she's like, Arendelle's already gone, <laughs> basically. Uh, think so maybe but um but yeah because she only talks to matthias about it yeah she she talks to matthias and she says and she says don't um uh and she i think she lets him know that arendelle is evacuated yes Um, and then she says don't uh elsa died to make this possible let's not lose any more life Mm. over uh with let's not lose any more life over not setting this right is basically right right no more no more bloodshed no more pain right yeah is is the the pitch and it's this i think it's a really interesting thing and and judging you know from the text of the film i think there is like i said an argument that you could make that you know maybe there is a darker ulterior motive that maybe even the character doesn't realize right oh i wasn't saying it was darker or, or ulterior i was just saying like it's very practical sure on top of doing the right thing but i think more what it is is this idea that like hey you've got to set right what was set wrong in fact the motivation of the film isn't even about like hey why did our streets just do the street spasm animation from the magic gathering card that was released in 2014 (laughs) um it's not even that question it's as soon as the trolls roll in they say there's something that's wrong that you need to set right and it's not that you need to save your town right like yes, right. there's there's elemental upheaval, but the troll is like, hey, I see in my mystic MacGuffin vision that there is something <laughs> that needs to be set right, <laughs> and and that's the whole pitch of the thing is right. It's yes, they go to the enchanted forest because of the events that happen, right? But the the reason that the whole thing goes into flux when it does, Elsa says she woke up the spirits. She says that in the film, like she called them right. There. She did that. And so I don't know that there was necessarily any real danger 
it was evacuated for safety, right? Because they didn't know what was going to happen. But the reason that they destroyed the dam was this idea of we will sacrifice the, these two ideals. We stand for the good and the many and our flag will always fly. One had to pick. One had to give, right? And and they picked that they would fly for the flag forever. Of course, you know, this Disney film pulls every single possible punch, so that's not a problem. <laughs> but... Um, I, I do think that's an interesting kind of dichotomy there, that, that at some point, to make it right, they had to pick which of their morals or their values was more important to them, right? Now, I want to say something about it pulling the punch about Arendelle not being destroyed. I think there's a message sent about post-colonial reparations, um, because anytime reparations are discussed for any group that the colonialization uh, within the United States uh, has affected, whether that's Native Americans or African Americans or any other group, whenever uh, postponed reparations are discussed, like, hey, maybe we should give something to these communities for all the atrocities that they've experienced, there are basically two arguments that are made. Um, One, uh, against it, I should say. Um, The first argument is that, uh, well, there's no longer any harm being done, so we don't need to do anything. and the second argument is that if we try to give any sort of preparation or aid, that will begin to actively hurt people. And I think that message is one that this film chooses to criticize by saying, hey, let's put Arendelle on the line as a location, as a city, um, but remove the human life from it. And Elsa and Anna decide it's worth sacrificing the city to set things right. Um, they're willing to make that kind of reparation. But the movie then also says, but hey, look, just because they made the decision to sacrifice the city, look, they actually didn't have to sacrifice the city. It was okay. And I think there's a takeaway there of, we can give reparations without it causing anybody any harm. Yeah, I think that's it too. But I think there's also a message of it would have been worth the harm that would have, yes. that could have been caused, right? Um, yeah, I've... I've thought a lot about that scene, and I don't know which I would have liked to see better. I mean, from a narrative standpoint, I feel like it the the stakes of it really would have paid off better had the had the town of Arendelle been washed away by uh, by the wave coming down the fjord. Sure. But at the same time, I kind of I kind of like the the message that it sends because it pushes back again. Uh, Anna, no Elsa. Elsa says um, when she's having her. Uh, when she's having her like trip through her memories in Atahalan and then it goes back past her memories into like her parents' memories and stuff like that. Um, and she sees her grandfather saying that the North Ultra can't be trusted because they use magic and magic um, magic like basically makes people untrustworthy. And makes it so that they don't fear the rule of the king. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they he he goes and he says that and Elsa responds with no it's fear that we can't trust. And I, I do like that that bit at the end pushed back against the idea that, uh, pushed back against the fear, like showed, uh, tried to show that the fear that people feel over some kind of large scale collapse, if uh, like saying that making things right isn't worth it because it could cause large scale damage to what we have already. Um, I like that the film pushed back back against that idea by showing that in this uh, in this case their fears 
were not something they should have been trusting this whole time. Cool take. I like that a lot. I also think it's really interesting, too, this idea that, like, it, it almost... They have to move past that fear and make the choice because the entire cultural history of their people is, in many ways, like a lie, right? Like, the narrative that has been told about this this other group... The only, as far as we know, I guess there's the Southern Isles where Hans is from, but you know the the nearest neighbor to them it seems is this group, the North Uldra. and it's it's kind of this interesting thing of like this interesting tension that that kind of describes you know we've defined ourselves in this way compared to this history for so long, and none of that is true. In order to even begin to reclaim our culture and to become a a semblance of a people again and to have a real history we need to set this right because we basically need to clear out the rubble from what's left of our of our fractured past right and i think that that idea is really cool as well this idea of like you know in order to even have something going forward we need to clear away all the damage that was done before right and we need to make things right before we can even start talking about who we are as a people right before we can even have a discourse about what it means to be from this place, right? Um, yeah, okay. I think that's a really good take. Uh, we don't have a ton of time left. I do hmm, I do want to talk real quick about one more thing, one more uh, kind of heady cultural theory concept, if we can dive into it, if that's okay with you guys. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'll make sure that I don't take up too much time. Uh, no, I think we should be, we should be good, but... Uh, there was an Indian cultural theorist, her name was uh, Gayatri Spivak, and she kind of coined the term, she didn't make the term, but she kind of coined it in connection with post-colonialism, this idea of the subaltern, which is a minority group which exists within colonial society but is excluded from it. Um, so the question she she's famous for asking is this idea of can the subaltern speak? You know, if there's a minority group in colonial society but that doesn't get to practice the the benefits of colonial society, do they have a voice? Can they talk? Um, and I well, want to talk a little bit about, the, in context of the film, who the subaltern are, can they speak, what ways do they speak, and if not, why can't they speak? Um, so yeah, let's take a look at it. <laughs> what did you guys think? Well, so first and foremost, um, are you guys familiar with the uh, no true Scotsman fallacy? Yes. Greg. Uh, I don't think I am. So, or maybe maybe I un- would understand the logic, but it's an yeah, appeal to terrible. purity, right? Yeah, it, essentially, it's it's an argument that, if I understand it correctly, basically says, um, person A uh, represents this group, and they claim that this group acts or believes in this way, or that this is the right thing to do, or whatever. Person B also claims to be part of that group and disagrees with person A about the way that group works. And so person B obviously must not actually be a part of the group because they disagree with person A, who represents the group. Okay. This this happens a lot uh, in religions. Um, yeah. People will have religious beliefs and they will claim to be, say, like a Catholic. And mainstream Catholicism will say for instance, one religious tenant, but then there will be other Catholics who disagree with that tenant. And so therefore, they're obviously not true Catholics because they disagree with that one tenant. 
Yeah. Um, I think maybe the description you've given to it is a little nebulous, right? Think about it this way. If we're having a discussion like this, right? I say, let's say we're from Scotland and I say every Scot or no Scotsman would ever eat oatmeal. And Nathaniel's like, well, I'm a Scotsman and I eat oatmeal. I respond, well, no true Scotsman would eat oatmeal, right? This idea that if, if you participate in a certain belief or a certain action, you fracture the purity of your descent or your, your membership in a group is, is the That's idea. That's a really of the good fallacy. way to put it. Um, okay. And, and so I guess my point with this is whenever somebody is a subaltern, some sort of minority group within colonialism, well, of course they're not a part of colonialism because they're no true Scotsman. They're not truly a part of the group because they don't conform to the group perfectly. Because if they did, then they wouldn't be a minority, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's one of those things where it kind of creates a bit of a paradox if you believe that those who deviate from the cultural norm are therefore not part of the culture, um, which I obviously don't believe. Sure. But that tends to happen a lot in people's thinking. So yeah. like, if we were to say that the North Ultra were part of the Arendellian uh, colonialism, um, well, obviously they're not because they're not Arendellian. Even though everything that they are is so tied up in Arendelle and vice versa, mm-hmm. as we've discussed, because of how close they are in proximity to each other. Okay. Right. And the the most important thing I think we can discuss here when we try to identify who the subaltern are, who the subaltern are in context of this film uh, is the ways in which their voices work. So, Greg, what did you think? Who are some of the the people in this film who who we could categorize as subaltern? Um, so the, I think maybe an important point going back to like, uh, going back to, uh, Spivak's, uh, theory, um, like her ideas, um, is that this really applies, uh, this is really more about the colonial situation than it is about the, um, than it is about the post-colonial situation, because the... The post-colonial situation that we see unfolding in um, in Arendelle in this movie is um, is one that starts to try to unravel um, unravel this problem of the uh, this problem of there being a subaltern, but the subaltern would definitely be uh, would definitely be the Northuldra um, and the I and the movie i think is trying to is trying to give those people the chance to speak like uh because the 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 typical answer within like a an a like an oppressive colonial system is no that the subaltern really meaningfully can't uh can't speak because they can't uh because what uh what speech they do what speech they are allowed is within their own cultural group that's separate from the colonial powers but underneath the colonial powers sure and i i think the movie is trying to is trying to show that unraveling yeah it's trying to show that dynamic unraveling yeah i think that's a good point uh to kind of over highlight north ultra were one of three uh subaltern groups that i identified that i think we could potentially call subaltern um the other two, just we won't talk about them, but the other two were, uh, I think there's a degree to which uh, Matthias, the general from Arendelle, and his people become subaltern. 
by the distance that they've spent from Arendelle and the ways in mm. which their voices are silenced. And I think that there's a degree to which the spirits of the forest as well become kind of a subaltern and, and lose their ability to speak by some of the things that happen in context of the film. Um, so that's something for, for us to chew on. We don't have a ton of time. So let's address just the North Uldra. I agree with you, Greg, that there's a degree to which this is challenging, this idea that they can't speak, but also consider this uh, semi-troubling fact. Who is the voice of the North Uldra's problem? Uh, Elsa, yeah. Which is kind of interesting, right? So there's this idea that um, they they could be cleanly identified as the subaltern, and even in contexts in which they can speak, they're admitted to, to talk, literally, but they're not admitted into the discourse of their own problems, right? They don't give the voice to the things that are happening to them or to the forest. In fact, they seem just as clueless as everybody else. Only Elsa is able to to unravel she becomes the voice of the problem she champions the cause which i think is one of the film's big problems honestly um i hmm, i find that interesting because one of the messages i think they're trying to send is their mom is north holdren their dad is from arendelle she and donna both then are they they can plant their feet in both camps uh genetically speaking right mm -hmm. and ancestrally speaking and in colonialism, there's actually a really long history of those who do have their feet in both camps being incredibly capable of making change compared to those who only have their feet in one camp. That's um, a really sharp criticism in response to my criticism. I like that a lot. You're welcome. That I that breaks down exactly what I was thinking. That's a good, super good point. If I, um. If I can, uh, if I can criticismception, <laughs> um, this this won't be nearly as impactful as what Nathaniel just said or what you said. But I, there there might be something to there might be something um, to talk about here. It yeah. is kind of problematic when you think about the the idea that we still do define um, that uh, we we still so heavily define. Um, a person's identity based on their uh like a cultural identity based on their genetics mm -hmm. um and the there's there's no pushback to uh there's there's no pushback to that idea i feel in this film that the idea that someone can be uh someone's culture could be defined by anything except uh genetics because obviously in this movie you need someone who is uh you need someone who is both north ultra and arendellian in order to make this change happen and th that's a little bit problematic like um why why couldn't the spirits I'm, I'm not saying it would have made a better movie or anything like that i'm just saying why did it of necessity have to be elsa aside from the loose explanation they gave why couldn't it have been one of the North Uldra who didn't really seem to have, uh, like, at this point, didn't really seem to have a whole ton of malice towards uh, Arendellians. They didn't seem like they were out for revenge when they when Anna and Elsa and Kristoff met them. Yeah, they were defensive, sure. but not bloodthirsty. Yeah, I... so why, why couldn't it have been? Or why couldn't it have been, you know, uh, they're... There's an obvious, like, problematic answer why for why it shouldn't have been, but 
But why couldn't it have been just someone who was fully from Arendelle? Or well, so why actually... couldn't it have been a third party like the Duke of Weaselton or Hans? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, it's there, there are good reasons for some of those why it shouldn't have been. I know what been, I but said. <laughs> why, it, why, why it couldn't have been. Yeah. No, but in all yeah. seriousness, why can't it be a third party? Why can't it be the trolls who are the main actors here? Right? Like, yeah. Why can't it be the reindeer? Uh, I think this is a super. These questions have maybe easier answers than where I, I realize, especially yours, Nathaniel. You spin it a little more broadly. It can't have been the trolls because it's not the trolls' responsibility to make right the actions of the trolls or of the Arendellians. Right? Yeah, that's fair. That's like saying, like, why isn't the UK fixing the US's racism problem? <laughs> okay, <Solid laughs> it's not. Point. It's not the issue of the UK, right? You could maybe do it through a military, but it's not going to happen as easily through discourse, right? How often do you see gun control arguments come from other countries to the United States, and what do they do? Nothing, right? They're not effective, um, unfortunately. (laughs) But it can't be fixed discursively from an outside group. But to lend more credence to what Greg was saying, the reason that sorry if you're uh, sorry if you're picking up a clock chiming. Oh yeah, (laughs) I don't know how to mute it. It's that time of night, I guess. Disney, it's letting us know that our microphone is going to turn into a pumpkin. True. It may sorry, go ahead, well Logan. I, I keep interrupting you. Yeah. Sorry. To answer your question, why can't it be a person of the North Uldra? The answer is Spivak's question. Can the subaltern speak? In, in the piece that she pitches that question, she also gives the answer. And the answer she gives is no. The subaltern can't speak. The subaltern literally is not allowed a voice of its own malice. And when that voice is expressed, it's never really lent credence, right? Now, she's describing this as a problem of colonialism and of post-colonialist societies, right? So I agree that there's, like, trouble there. But the reason it can't be somebody who is who is purely North Uldra is because they're subaltern, right? And so we found the problem and the solution to the question kind of bundled up in this mess of, because of the way that they exist in relation to colonialism, their problems are harder to enter the discourse from their own doing, right? Which yeah. is the point The point Spivak's making with that is that that needs to change, right? And maybe part of the way that this changes is by, um, by uh, change happening in movies like Frozen 2, right? Maybe in the next movie like this, the North Uldra people do, um, they do fix their own voice. They do become their own voice and they do overcome this. Um, but in context of realism, that's kind of where this lands. Anyway, we're about out of time, but I I did want to talk about this, talk about some of these post-colonial narratives. I'm bummed we didn't get to some of the other elements of the film. We just kind of got consumed with this. But, um, but I really appreciate you guys taking a, a second to do this. Do you like it? How do you feel about this movie? Do you want to watch it again? I know both of you will. You have kids. It's inevitable. But do you want to watch it again? <laughs> um, how did we feel about this movie? Okay, so that's a yes. <laughs> Greg, how do you feel I, about this movie? I I would watch it, and I'd throw in just something to kind of like get the last word in on what you were just saying. Um uh haiti throwing off uh throwing off throwing off uh colonial powers at least for a brief 
period of time. I would throw that in as the case study, but we obviously don't have time to talk about that. We do that not have more. time to unpack Haiti. Yeah, because there's questions there about um, the way that Haiti used language and discourse and, and the language of its own colonization as a tool to overcome its own oppression. Um, there's a lot we could unpack there. And man, that's a tough time to pull that in. But yeah, that's a... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, people read about Haiti, read about... Uh, read Spivak, read about the subaltern, read Saeed, uh, and, and, and watch this movie. Uh, we're pretty much out of time, but that's going to do it for us for a, another one. You can find us on the web at peepthisnoise.com where we have original uh, writing content that we're putting up there. There's also a link there to our Acast site where you can listen to the show and, and stream um, it directly to your device. It's uh, worth mentioning with our website, for some reason, the url if you just type in peepthisnoise.com is not working you do need to include that www dot beforehand that's correct that's correct i'm glad you interrupted me to say that um the other thing that we uh have is our twitter at peepthisnoise uh, you can follow that and, and keep on top of everything that we're doing here if you like the show go ahead and give us a rating and a review on itunes uh i think we're five star that's my opinion <laughs> but, i don't know like, give us uh, a four and a half if you disagree maybe uh, think listen to a few more episodes until that changes and then uh then go rate and review us uh the most important <laughs> thing you can do if you do like the show is to spread it by word of mouth tell somebody about the show um before we go out completely uh greg you have your your piece yeah. that we'll be talking about in the next episode which is blackpink's biggest hits tell me about this um, I would just like to say we're going to be uh, we're going to be listening to Whistle, Boombaya, Stay, and Do 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 Do, and Kill This Love, all by the K-pop group Blackpink. Awesome. So we'll be talking about that next week. Um, so yeah, that's going to do it for this episode. As we fade out, you're going to hear the sweet dulcet tones of Katie Davidson and the band Key Losers. We'd like to thank them for our theme song. Don't know why. Um, but yeah, until next week when we listen to Blackpink and talk about what we think about their songs, just remember, everybody likes bad things. So open up your mind, let the wind inside.